Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just a short intro this week to thank my latest patrons on Patreon, Laura, Amber, Crystal, and Caitlin. If you'd like to find out more about how to support the show head over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. You should totally do it. All my patrons are amazing. And you want to be amazing too, right? I'd also like to give a shout out to my iTunes reviewers, including a very generous one from the superbly named... Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Badass queens rule. Yes, indeed they do, and thanks for your kind words. I do love reading all your reviews on iTunes, so I'd be really grateful if more of you could leave them. It does make the show that little bit more enticing to new listeners, so if you could, that would be swell. Finally, remember that the show is on Facebook and Twitter, so be sure to head over and like slash follow it on there. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello. And welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Supplemental, Philip of Spain, the Queen's husband, King of England. We've been talking.
talking about Mary Tudor now for months. We first saw her as a newborn babe in episode 38, and have subsequently seen her move from being a much-loved daughter, to a bastard anachronism, to being legitimised, and finally in the last few years of Henry's reign, restored to the line of succession. As I have said from the start, this podcast is not interested in ruling queens. That is for a different kind of show. What the Queens of England podcast does examine is the consorts, not the Queen's Regnant. This means that Mary Tudor will not be covered in detail, nor will her half-sister Elizabeth, nor for that matter, their cousin Lady Jane Grey. But as I said last week, it would not do to just skip ahead from Catherine Parr to Anne of Denmark, which leads us to the supplemental episode on Philip of Spain. If that name sounds familiar to you, then it's probably because it was he that ordered the Spanish Armada against England in 1588. If you have any Filipino ancestry, then you may know that the Philippines were named after him. He presided over the golden age of the Spanish Empire, and is one of the key figures of Renaissance-era Europe. But what is not known by many is that he was once a King of England. Now since I would like to cover this in one supplemental episode, I'm going to bring you all up to speed very quickly. Let's first look at Mary. We briefly touched on the start of her reign in the final episode on Anne of Cleves, but I barely mentioned all that went on, so I will recap. As you will remember, she was restored to the line of succession thanks to the Act of Succession of 1544, something that Catherine Parr had quite a bit to do with. When her half-brother Edward came to the throne in 1547, it became quickly clear that the realm was to decisively swing towards Protestantism. Their father had ripped a giant hole in the religious fabric of England, but had never been much interested in reform for its own sake, only as far as it served his interests. Mary was, though, like her mother in her later years, a devout and determined traditionalist Roman Catholic. Even after laws were passed enforcing Protestant doctrine and the Book of Common Prayer, Mary kept up her Catholic faith and worship in her own household. She was not much welcome at court, and so mostly stayed at her estates in East Anglia and Essex. When she did attend court, she was put under intense pressure to convert, once apparently reduced to tears by her brother, but still she persisted. It was well known that, should she come to the throne, she would seek to roll the clock back to 1529 and restore England back to the papal bosom. Now, of course, that all seemed very unlikely, as England had a young king already on the throne who would surely live a long and happy life and have many Protestant children to entrench the revolution. But, alas, no. In January of 1553, Edward caught a fever which lapsed and relapsed for a time, but it was very clear that he was not long for this world. The fact that everyone had an advance warning of his death allowed the Lord Protector, who was now the Duke of Northumberland, time to plan. He knew, as an arch-Protestant, that there was an axe or even a stake with his name on it if Mary launched a counter-reformation, and so he planned a coup d'etat. He convinced the dying Edward VI to tear up his father's will, and instead passed the crown off not to his sister, but his second cousin, Jane Grey, who was married to Northumberland's son, Guildford. You may remember Jane from the series on Catherine Parr, as she had been a ward at the former Queen and her husband, Thomas Seymour. While this all went swimmingly well for about five seconds, Jane quote-unquote reigned for nine days before Mary came sweeping down with an army of Protestant and Catholic supporters to claim the crown that was rightfully hers. So, let's all pause to take a breath while we take that all in. England had, for the first time ever, or at least since the 12th century, a ruling queen, and certainly the first time it was not widely disputed. After all of Henry VIII's panicking about the dangers of female rule, it was time to put it to the test. 
Now, of course, she would have no doubts about her own suitability. Her mother had ruled the kingdom as a regent for a time, and of course her grandmother was Queen Isabella of Castile, one of the greatest queen regnants of the Middle Ages. She had ridden to power on a great wave of popular support, and so she had a lot of momentum going into her reign. She had a lot to do, though, the first being to decide what to do with her privy councillors, who had initially supported Northumberland's coup d'etat. She forgave them, for the most part, but never trusted them, favouring instead a select group of key supporters. She also elevated conservatives from the old days, who you may remember. Stephen Gardiner was made Lord Chancellor, and her old friend the Duke of Norfolk was restored to prominence. Catherine Parr would have been turning in her grave. But really high on her to-do list was the question of her marriage. Now this is where things get interesting. With male kings, the question of marriage was all about securing the succession and gaining some sort of advantage, be it alliance, peace or financial. With a woman, well it was about those things as well of course, but it was far, far more complicated. When a woman took a husband, she normally relinquished her rights to her property, possessions and money, everything really. In the case of a queen, did this mean that if she got married she would have to relinquish the crown? There was certainly precedent for that with queen regnants in the past. However, everyone, including Mary, was extremely unkeen for that to happen. She was the rightful and legal ruler of England. Having her as a ruling queen was going to be a thing, but there was a question about what kind of a man, who was noble enough to be an acceptable match for a ruling queen of England, would agree to these terms. But let's say they could find someone to do that. The goalposts then moved to something called the crown matrimonial. This was the notion that the man who married the ruling queen would reign as a co-monarch. The appropriate man would need to be someone who would not only have to accept the situation, but if it was to be successful, he would have to, in a sense, buy into it as well. They needed a man who could discharge the roles of a ruler that could only be dealt with by a man, i.e. military matters, as well as perform his manly duties of providing the queen with an heir, to continue the Tudor line. But, to a great extent, that is where it stopped. The crown was Tudor, it was Mary's by right, it would not be handed over on a platter to some dude. So, who were the contenders? Well, Mary's councillors favoured a domestic match. For all the benefits that marrying a foreign prince could give diplomatically, it would throw up all sorts of complex questions about the succession, not to mention foreign entanglements, as theoretically this husband would be the head of the military. No, far better to elevate one of their own to the rank of king. He would be far easier to control, and would know the score. The leading candidate was a man called Edward Courtney, the Earl of Devon. He had strong royal blood, as his mother was the granddaughter of Edward IV, From a highly conservative family, he had been caught up along with his parents in a plot to lead a Catholic uprising in the late 1530s. He and his mother were imprisoned and his father was executed. His mother was released after a few years and became close friends with the then Princess Mary, but Edward remained in the tower even after most political prisoners were released upon Edward VI's accession to the throne. It was not until Mary became queen that Courtney was released. His noble family, family connections and religious fervour, and most of all, Englishness, seemed to make him a strong candidate. But he was young, well over a decade younger than Mary. He was also a bit of a hothead, and had spent his formative years not learning statecraft, but instead banged up in the tower. But there was a larger problem. Mary had already set her heart on marrying someone else, and it was not someone that the people of England were going to like. 
Okay, so we need to wind the clock back a little bit further to the dark days, at least for Mary, of the 1520s and 30s. Back then, her father had appeared to be an intractable enemy, while her cousin, the Emperor Charles V, clothed himself as her knight in shining armour. She then declared that he was her true father and gave him the right of consultation on her marriage. Now, this was really rather moot at the time, but neither of them forgot this promise now that Mary had come to the throne. Now, you may, of course, remember that Mary and Charles had once been betrothed, but he was now far too old to be a suitable candidate. But, of course, he had his eyes on who a suitable candidate for the Habsburg Emp... I mean, for his beloved cousin, Mary, would be. These discussions were had through the imperial ambassador, Simon Renard, and it seems that she was far closer to him and had far greater trust in his wisdom and loyalty than she did any of her subjects. Indeed, she confided in Renard that she viewed them as being, quote, variable, inconstant, and treacherous. Now, of course, she had come to the throne largely because many of her nobles had defected back to her after betraying her, but that was just politics. She seemed to imbue Renard and his master Charles as being on some higher moral plane than the English. This was, to put it mildly, a huge mistake. Okay, so let's quickly widen our view away from the White Cliffs of Dover and look at the continent to see why Charles was so fussed about this small island off the northern coast of Europe. As I've mentioned a ton of times, the story of 16th century Europe is really one of a great struggle between the Habsburg Holy Roman Empire on one hand and the French on the other. This great conflict sucked in other, smaller realms who allied on various sides depending on their interests. Now, of course, an old, with an A, ally of France was the Kingdom of Scotland, where its French dowager queen had just married off her daughter, Mary I, Queen of Scots, to the heir to the French throne, the Dauphin Francis. This would mean that the future king of France would have the crown matrimonial of Scotland. What if they tried to do something similar with England? Charles needed to make sure that England was kept within the Habsburg orbit, and the best way to do that was the old-fashioned way, a marital alliance. The man that he therefore set up with Mary was his son, Philip, which means that we will need to keep our eyes on the continent for just a little bit longer. Philip of Spain was born in 1527, making him 11 years younger than Mary, and was the eldest son of the Emperor Charles V. In 1543, he was essentially made the regent of Spain as part of Charles V's eventual planned partition of the empire. He would receive Spain and the Low Countries, while his uncle Ferdinand would keep the empire. Yes, it was more complicated than that. No, I won't be going into it. In the same year, Philip was married off to his first cousin, Maria of Portugal, because that's just how the Habsburgs roll. This marriage, though, did not last long, as he died two years later, making Philip a highly eligible bachelor. Their union, though, did produce a son, Charles, and remember that, because it will become important. In the next few years, he had a number of flings, but in 1553, it looked like he was about to be married to another Portuguese princess, who was both his aunt and his cousin, because, again, this is how the Habsburgs did things. Anyway, once it became clear that there was a chance that a Habsburg princess could sit on the throne of England, Charles made Philip ditch his aunt-slash-cousin and moved to the more genetically pure waters of his cousin. Again, because Habsburg. For Mary, this was an ideal match. Philip was a wealthy, noble, powerful, and most importantly, traditionally Catholic prince. For Philip, this was a chance to add another crown to his collection, as well as firm up the imperial position in the Low Countries. For Charles, 
it secured its position against France. For England, well, that's where the problem lay. Okay, so now I have set the scene and introduced the players. Let's see how this all played out. I think you can already see where the fundamental conflict here lies, and surprisingly enough, it wasn't really about religion. The people of England had flocked to Mary's cause, even though it was widely known she was a devout traditionalist Catholic. The fact that she had married someone who shared her beliefs was really by the by. Indeed, the prospect of restoring the old religion was met with considerable favour. The problem is that she was bringing a foreign prince over, and more than that, probably the most powerful prince that was still on the market. It would be one thing if she had just married some foreigner who ruled a tiny duchy or principality that no one had heard of. No, she had married the heir of the Habsburgs. And more than that, someone who was pretty much guaranteed to get them tied up in all sorts of foreign wars that England had no stake in and would only lead to them bleeding men and treasure. So you can see here the fundamental difference between a ruling king marrying and a queen doing so. Let's say Henry VIII had married a daughter of the emperor. Do you think that these questions would have been asked? No one would really be concerned that his wife would drag him into a ruinous foreign war on the continent. Of course not. To be fair, Henry was quite keen enough to do that on his own steam. But that is beside the point. The worry was that when it was a queen marrying a powerful foreign prince, she would feel obligated to obey her husband and do his bidding. Would Mary allow Philip to send the English soldiers using English money to war on the continent to further the Habsburg cause? Could she stop him even if she wanted to? These were the questions keeping many Englishmen up at night. Someone else who seemed far from keen on the match was actually Philip himself. I mentioned earlier that it made a lot of sense for him to marry Mary, but that did not mean that he was actually keen on the matter. He told his father Charles on the matter of Mary's marriage, quote, In case your majesty decides on me, and if you wish to arrange things for me, your highness knows that since I am such an obedient son, I have no will but yours, even more so in matters of such obvious import and moment. Basically, I'll do my duty for God and the emperor, but I'd rather not. There was an immediate power play when it came to the proposal, as Philip wanted it to come from Mary, but she refused. Eventually, the proposal came from Renard, the imperial ambassador, in October 1553. She told him that she was minded to accept, but on the condition that rulership of England was hers, not his. Renard agreed, saying that Philip would not interfere, and further guaranteed to not involve England in costly foreign wars, as it was considered vital that the realm was defended from French and Scottish invasion. Once the news was leaked to her counsellors, many of them, including Stephen Gardner, pleaded with her to choose Edward Courtney, but she refused. She wanted Philip. Well, that was all well and good, but now the diplomatic manoeuvring had to get going in earnest. Marion Renard had laid the foundations of an agreement, but now it got rather complicated. She requested and received a portrait of the proposed bridegroom, one painted by Titian. Still, foreign suitors came to try and change her mind, and her counsellors nagged, cajoled, anything to get her to choose Courtney over Philip. But she was the daughter of two intractable people. She would not budge. The deal was eventually thrashed out by December of that year, which, to be fair, is pretty good by contemporary standards. Philip was only informed about it as a fait accompli, while Mary had been involved every step of the way. This is rather interesting, because this, of course, is very much like how it went down for most royal marriages at the time. The monarch negotiating terms, the prospective match being informed once the deal was done by their father. It's just that in this case, the genders were reversed. 
The agreement, which was laid out in two separate treaties, began by laying out the role that Philip would have in the realm. Quote, The said most serene Prince Philip will enjoy the style, honour and kingly name of the realms and dominions pertaining to the most serene queen, along with the most serene queen his consort, and assist her in the happy administration of her realm and dominions while preserving the rights, laws and privileges and customs of the said realms and dominions. Okay, so that is nice and vague. It seems to raise him up to the same level as Mary, doesn't it? Well, it was all downhill from there as far as Philip's power was concerned. The next thing that was given away was the Low Countries, which would go to what children they had, even if they were female, and not to his son from the previous marriage. This amounted, in effect, to ceding them to Mary upon his death. It also levied a hefty dowry and pension that Philip was required to pay her. Should Philip's son Charles die childless, it meant the Spanish crown too would go to his children with Mary. But Charles would not inherit the English crown. Then there came the restrictions, and boy were there a lot of them. These were all demanded by the English negotiators, who, as I said before, were terrified of the prospect of a Habsburg takeover of England. Here is what Philip was required to agree to. Quote, The prince shall swear he will not promote to any office in England any foreigner. He will admit to his household English gentlemen and yeomen inconvenient number and bring none in his retinue that will do any displeasure or wrong to the subjects of the realm. He shall make no innovation in the laws and customs of England. He shall not lead away the queen from her realm unless she desires it, nor carry the children of the marriage out of England, but let them be brought up there unless otherwise agreed by the English nobility. If no children are left and the queen dies before him, he shall not challenge any right in the kingdom, but permit the succession to come to them whom it shall belong by right and law. He shall not carry out of the realm jewels or precious goods, nor alienate any appurtenances of the realm, or allow any part of them to be usurped by his subjects or others, but shall see all places of the realm, especially forts and frontiers, faithfully kept and by the natives, nor allow the removal of any ships, guns, or other munitions, but see them diligently kept and renewed. England shall not be entangled with the war between the Emperor and the French King. Philip, as much as he can, shall see the peace observed between France and England, and give no cause of breach, but may assist his father in defence of his lands and revenge of his injuries. These were no trivial restrictions. They separated Philip from the traditional authority of a king so completely that he may as well not have been one at all. He had kept the powers of a king within England, yes, but not allowing him to pursue his own foreign policy, send troops where he needed, appoint his ministers he wanted, or use any of the resources of the kingdom in defence of his wider lands was demeaning to him. Make no mistake, he still had more power than almost any other queen consort in English history. He was still a king regnant in England, but one shackled to what was, in effect, restricted government. He was nominally co-ruler with his wife, but she had none of these restrictions. These treaties made it clear who ruled England, and it was Mary the woman, not Philip the man. Philip was, as you may have guessed, decidedly unimpressed by this deal, which he had no part in negotiating, but he had a cunning plan. He told his father that he would only sign the treaty under duress. He had no intention of being bound by its terms. And Mary, it seems, agreed to these secret reservations, in particular the ones about intervening in foreign wars. The clause remained, but it seems that Mary told him that she would help him out in any case. Of course, 
Neither Charles nor Mary felt the need to tell the English that they had secretly renegotiated the treaty. This was all ratified by an Act of Parliament in January 1554, and everything seemed set for the royal wedding. But, despite all the restrictions and constraints that would be placed on Philip, there were still some in England who virulently opposed the match, and egged on by French agents, they broke out in open rebellion. An uprising in Devon failed, but a simultaneous call to arms in Kent, led by Sir Thomas Wyatt, raised an army of thousands. Mary, against the advice of her counsellors, who had told her to flee, went to the Guildhall in London and gave an impassioned speech defending her rule and the decision to marry Philip. She told them that Philip was the best hope of defending England from French-funded Scottish invaders. The Londoners rallied to her cause and the uprising was squashed. Despite its defeat, though, it unnerved Charles so much that the ceremony to declare the marriage was delayed. When it was eventually done, Philip was not present. Instead, a stand-in had to be found. Leaving his sister Joanna in charge in Spain, Philip left Coronia as part of an armada of 125 ships, laden with dignitaries, gold, fancy clothes, as well as soldiers who were destined for the Low Countries. A week later, they arrived at Portsmouth, where Philip was told that he had been made King of Naples by his father, raising him to the same rank as his bride. He was also made a member of the Order of the Garter, so here we can see further attempts to mollify the disgruntled bridegroom. These courtesies would not, of course, have been ever extended if the genders were reversed. The party then travelled to Winchester, which, as the seat of Bishop Gardiner, the Lord Chancellor, had been decided upon as the wedding venue. In typical English fashion, the weather was terrible the whole way there, but everyone seemed suitably excited as Philip was formally welcomed into the city and was guided to the Dean's Palace, where he met his bride for the first time. Both were dressed to impress, but Philip's party, it seems, was not particularly impressed with Mary, with criticisms of her fashion sense, but most particularly her age, commonplace amongst them. The two had somewhat also of a problem with communication, as they did not speak a common language, as Mary did not speak very good Spanish, and Philip knew not a single word of English. It seems that Mary spoke in French to him, while he spoke Spanish to her, which she endeavoured to comprehend. The day of their wedding, on July the 25th, was a typical English summer's day. In that, it pelted with rain from dawn till dusk. Philip was dressed in an outfit bought for him by his wife, white with a mantle of cloth of gold, decorated with jewels, and Mary was dressed in black, which was, I promise, more common then than it is now. They then both processed into the cathedral and sat on their respective thrones, as befitted the co-rulers of England. After some religious and secular niceties were taken care of, they were led to the altar, where the details of the marriage treaties were read out and agreed to once more. Then Philip was directed to make this declaration. Quote, Philip, will you have Mary as your wife, to cherish and love her at all times, in poverty or improved circumstances, in favourable health or stricken by some disease, and have no dealings with other women, surrendering to her your body and your entire kingdom? After he said, yes, Mary was directed to do the same, which she did. They then took mass, whereupon heralds announced their titles. Quote, Philip and Mary, by the grace of God, King and Queen of England, France, Naples, Jerusalem and Ireland, defenders of the faith, princes of Spain and Sicily, archdukes of Austria, dukes of Milan, Burgundy and Brabant, counts of Habsburg, Flanders and Tyrol. That is quite the collection of titles there, though it's fair to say that some of them were in name only. 
After this, they left hand in hand for the Dean's Palace, where there was the traditional feasting, rejoicing and dancing. After all that was done, there was one further duty. After being bedded by the guests and blessed by the bishop, they were left alone in their bedchamber to consummate the marriage. The following days saw further processions and parties as the royal couple slowly made their way towards London. The crowds were not exactly vast, as there were still many reservations about the Queen's choice in her husband, but they were warm nonetheless. His welcome into the city was as lavish as one could imagine, as great as Philip had ever encountered on the continent. He had arrived in his new realm. He was King of England, but it was still to be decided exactly how much authority he would be able to wield. Was he really a king, or was he a consort? Okay, well you all know the lens through which I judge queens, though I seem to use different words each time. Fertility, advantage, morality, and influence. Let's examine Philip using these parameters, because while he was a king, he was also something a little bit less. So, fertility. We know of course right off the bat that he was fertile, as he had a son already, and there were rumours that he had fathered many legitimates as well. But in a sense, While having children was vital for Mary, it wasn't as crucial for Philip. She needed an heir to continue her legacy. He already had one. She was 38. She may not be over the hill, but she was standing right on top of it. On the other hand, Philip was far younger and so had plenty more time to father heirs should the need arise. The pressure was still very much placed on the woman here. It didn't matter that she was the ruler, the burden was hers far more than it was his. Though it appeared all the naysayers were wrong, as in October 1554, just three months after the royal wedding, rumours spread that Mary was pregnant. She entered confinement in April 1555 to a chamber that was lavishly decorated. The great and the good of the land assembled to help and wish her well, but it didn't take long for there to be signs that all was not well. The goings-on were kept a secret, but that did not stop a wild rumour circulating on May Day that she had given birth to a son. This was false, and the weeks and months rolled by with no sign of a child. Indeed, her belly started to press rather than swell, and gossip suggested that maybe she was not pregnant after all. Mary remained resolute until August, which was of course way past what any reasonable due date would have been. Humiliated, Mary retired to a small country estate to regroup. Her husband left the kingdom for the Netherlands. The rude gossip flying around the court was best exemplified by the Venetian ambassador, who stated, quote, The pregnancy will end in wind and nothing more. What went on to cause this is a matter of some debate, as there is very little evidence. It may have been a tumour, or it could be a hysterical pregnancy, no one really knows. But it was a hammer blow to Mary's hopes of producing a son. Philip certainly didn't help her attempts to get pregnant with his constant visits to the continent. It appeared again that she was pregnant in early 1558, with Mary exhibiting the same symptoms, but it turned out to be false again. This time, the doubters were there from the very start. According to Philip's advisor, the Duke of Feria, quote, It seems to me she only thinks she is pregnant, though she won't admit it. Everything she does is intended to make you come here. It would be safest for a man to believe what he sees and to withhold judgment until then. So, to sum up, This union failed to produce the wrong for son, an heir, or even really a daughter, an heir, as that would have been good enough. For Mary, and to an extent Philip, the need for a child was paramount, not just for the usual reasons of wanting to pass the crown off to their child and not someone else's, but the need to pass it on to the right kind of person, specifically one that followed the correct religion. This was so important, 
and yet they failed. But as I've already said, the blame for this fell on the woman, just like it would have done had she been a consort. Now this was partly due to her age, as this provided a ready-made explanation, but I honestly think that even had she been a sprightly teenager, she would have attracted the blame here. But when I say blame, we're not talking Henry VIII levels here. She wasn't in danger of losing her position or her head because of her failure to produce a child. But crucially, neither was her husband. Therein lies the difference between a queen consort and Philip of Spain. Okay, that's enough for fertility, and I also think we can pretty much skip through advantage, as we've already covered that in considerable depth. You didn't get much more advantage than you did with Philip. I mean, just think back to that huge list of titles that I read to you earlier that the two shared. Together they laid claim to the vast majority of Europe, along with the vast wealth of the growing Spanish Empire in the Americas and Pacific. Now, of course, that advantage was tempered significantly by the responsibilities that holding all that territory would entail, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. This brings us on neatly to morality, and here we run headlong into the Protestant propagandists. History is written by the victors, and this means that writers in the English tradition paint Catholics, and Spain in particular, in extremely negative light. We get what is called the Black Legend, which paints pretty much everything that Spain did in the 16th century as being, in the words of historian Charles Gibson, quote, cruel, bigoted, exploitative, and self-righteous in excess of reality. This is then married with the idea of Bloody Mary, a tradition built up in Elizabethan circles of a mad, tyrannical, mad Catholic attempting to stamp out the true faith of Protestantism by burning every one of them that she could find. Now this episode is not the place to examine the notion of Bloody Mary, it is far too complicated and nuanced, but I just wanted to lay out just how our evidence is severely tainted by this lens. So what are Philip's moral chops? Well, he was definitely a good Catholic, not perhaps as devout as his wife was at this time, but he was certainly a true believer. His father had once given him the following advice, quote, Defend the faith, never allow heresy to enter your kingdom, support the Holy Inquisition. Now, there were plenty in England, and not all of them Protestants, that feared that Philip would impose the Spanish Inquisition upon them. While they may have expected them, Monty Python reference intended, this did not really incur. It is true that there was not much in the way of burning of heretics before the marriage, and that the Spanish clerics and advisers were a part of the heresy trials that followed, but while they could be seen to have perhaps influenced Mary, Philip himself was far more out of the loop. He was concerned with heresy in his own lands, yes, but not really in England. Of course, it didn't help the reputation of the marriage that his followers were influencing his wife to execute so many recalcitrant Protestants in such a brutal fashion, but again, it was mostly Mary who took the blame here. She suffered the dual problem of being both a woman and the one in charge, and so served as a lightning rod for criticism then and now. Philip did, though, make one great impact on the religious fabric of England, and that was to officially return them to the papal bosom. He did this within a few months of becoming king, and it was certainly carefully orchestrated by both himself and his father Charles so that he got the credit for this and not Mary. Now this was more complicated than just simply a clash of religions, as one of the major actions of the English Reformation to this point has been the selling off of monastic lands by Henry to speculators. These people were the rich and powerful of England, and had no intention whatsoever, whatever their religion, of handing that land back to the church. 
Therefore, Philip and the Habsburgs surrounding the papal court persuaded Pope Julius to write off these lands in exchange for returning England to his authority. As historian David Lones points out in his biography of Mary, she simply did not have the influence to do it herself. Her word carried very little weight in the papal court. Philip, though, was a Habsburg, and a hugely powerful one at that. When he spoke, popes listened. In the end, Philip took all the credit, sidelining his wife in a move to which she did not seem to object. This was in many ways his greatest triumph as a king of England, although of course circumstances led this return to the Roman fold was short-lived. This then really rather merges morality with influence, which is what we will deal with next, and this of course is where Philip has a huge advantage over pretty much every queen consort that we have covered so far, Eleanor of Aquitaine perhaps excluded. Through the titles he held in Spain, the Low Countries and Naples, Philip had huge amounts of troops and wealth for his command, but of course none of that was to really benefit England. You'll remember that, while he was proclaimed as King of England and a co-ruler with his wife Mary, his rulership was severely restricted. All state documents bore his name as well as hers, and he accompanied her on state occasions when he was in the kingdom, but other than that, the only real influence he had on domestic affairs was whatever he could talk his wife into agreeing to, and to be fair, he didn't do much of that because he frankly had little to no interest. But he did do some things. One of the principal jobs of a queen normally was to arrange the court entertainments, but Mary was a bit of a bore and wasn't much interested in such things. Philip organised not only traditional courtly fare, but also more manly entertainments of war games and jousts. This served the dual purpose of pleasing the sole nobility, but also preparing them for the wars that he wished to send them into. He was also named Regent of England, though if and only if Mary should die in childbirth. This was, though, quite the honour, as the marriage treaty had explicitly said that after Mary's death, he should have no role by right. Clearly, he had impressed. What he never had, though, and this is important, is a coronation. Now, not all Queen's Consort of England had received coronations. Indeed, none of Henry's final four wives have received one. But while Mary was rather besotted with her husband, she and her counsellors were extremely wary of handing him too much of her power, especially when she was still alive. He pressed and pressed for a coronation, using himself essentially as a hostage, telling Mary that he would not return to the kingdom until he was granted the honour. But Mary stood firm. It was Mary's love for him and his casual indifference to her that was his greatest source of influence. He could not use it to leverage a coronation, but he did use it to appoint some ministers he wanted, or at least be consulted on matters. He tried to use it to arrange the marriage of one of his kinsmen to Princess Elizabeth, but Mary opposed him on that, not because she wanted to protect her sister, but because she didn't want to promote Elizabeth's rank above that of the bastard that she believed her to be. But of course, the most important thing for him, the very reason really he'd agreed to the marriage in the first place, was to get English help in his wars in France. Now this, of course, is a unique part of having a man married to a female monarch, rather than the other way around. Whenever queens led troops into battle, or at least accompanied them or organised them, it was always because their husband was elsewhere. See the examples of Catherine of Aragon, Matilda of Boulogne, and Margaret of Anjou. Philip here was essentially adopting the military role of being a king and rising above the position of consort, which he essentially filled in every other aspect of rulership. The war made sense for Philip and Mary, but her privy council was utterly opposed to it. This had been what everyone had feared all along. It would be expensive, pointless, and potentially ruinous. 
Eventually, the council reluctantly backed it for complicated reasons that I won't go into, and troops were paid for by the Earl of Pembroke. Now, this was a broad European war that had been going on for a long time, with its main theatre being in Italy, and it pitted, as usual, France and her allies against the Habsburgs and their allies. The English involvement was in the same vein as it had been throughout all of the Italian wars. Pick a fight with France in the north to distract them while the Habsburgs beat them up in Italy. It was a decent plan, but like most English interventions on the continent in the Tudor period, it was a fiasco. But this was worse than any of the others, because Calais, the last English bastion on the continent, was lost to the French in a surprise attack. This was the end of any good reputation that Philip had in England blamed by his subjects for leading them into a war that they didn't want, that had lost them such an important symbol of national pride, he cut his losses in England. He stopped paying his supporters, and seemed unlikely to return to his wife for some time. In fact, as fate would have it, he would never see her again. As a few months later, Mary fell grievously ill. Despite the disdain in which he held his wife, Philip was anxious when he heard the news. He may not have loved Mary, but he was fond of being a king. Fear of what might happen during the transition kept him away from England, which meant that when Mary did eventually die in November 1558, it was without her husband by her side. Now there is a very long epilogue to Philip after he ceased to be King of England, but we'll be covering that a little bit at least in the next episode, so I'll leave it until then to cover it. So, let's examine Philip. From the outset, it is clear that comparing him to our other queens is somewhat problematic, as he was not legally a consort, but a co-ruler, a proclaimed king no less. He also had considerable lands that he ruled on his own, something that was not the case for many of the other husbands of the ruling queens in British history. See the examples of, say, Lord Darnley, George of Denmark, and of course the current Duke of Edinburgh. However, I do think that it is interesting and instructive to use him as a case study to look at just how differently a man was treated when he married a ruling queen, rather than the other way around, which was of course the normal state of affairs. The first is obvious, he was declared king when he married Mary, no such honour was ever given to a woman. Mary was made a queen of Naples and a duchess and a countess of all his lands upon their marriage, but it seems clear that this was as a consort, not a co-ruler. So we can see the influence of gender cropping up clearly here. With our queens, we usually get a few who want to gain power, but very rarely are they so effectively throttled by legislation as Philip was. He was cloaked in the role of a military leader, something that was considered to be exclusively male, but much like his female counterparts, he was largely excluded from political power in England. What influence he did have came at the behest of his spouse. Again, a very familiar state of affairs for us. When it came to children, the failure to produce heirs was placed on Mary, the role of gender holding very much firm in that regard, though of course her age also played into it. We also have no idea what would have happened, though, had Mary lived longer, or if she had given birth to a child. The odds were very much against her on the latter front, given her age, but a longer reign would have probably led to a change in Philip's role. It's possible that the nobility of England would have softened their fears eased a little with further exposure to him, but it's equally possible that tensions would have only increased. Certainly, the aftermath of the loss of Calais did nothing to ingratiate Philip to the English. In all, then, what the example of Philip of Spain tells us is that the role of consort and the role of gender are not necessarily as ironcladly linked as we might suppose. Being married to the ruling monarch was legally restricting no matter whether you were a man or a woman, but certainly more doors were open to you if you were a man. So, we'll leave it there for this week. 
Next time, we will examine the men in the life of Elizabeth I. While much of Mary's reign was dominated by her marriage and its fallout, Elizabeth took the opposite route, as the Virgin Queen found herself, like Penelope in the Odyssey, constantly pursued by suitors. Foreign princes and English nobles all sought her hand, but she never accepted. Who were these men, and why did she refuse them? Find out next time on the Queens of England podcast. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria algae body oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. It's signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.